Part One, Chapter Seven of Mountains in the Mist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. Mountains in the Mist, by Frank W. Borum. Spectre and Song. One. I confess that I was puzzled. I had been reading that chiefest and choicest gem of all devotional literature, David's great penitential psalm, 51, and I had been arrested by this startling statement, My sin is ever before me. Now when you come to think of it, that is an awful thing. To be haunted, summer and winter, sleeping and waking by that ugliest and most hideous of all specters, its ghostly finger continually pointing relentlessly and accusingly into the contrite penitent's face. It was with him in the night, and he drenched his pillow with his tears. It rose with him every morning. It tracked him through every day. His whole life was a sob. Ever before me, ever before me. There can be no apparition in fact or in fiction so fearfully frightful as that but I have not yet stated the real cause of my perplexity. It was just this. Even as this dreadful sentence was beating itself into my shuddering soul, it flashed upon me that I had come upon it in the world's greatest and grandest hymn-book, the Book of Psalms. I had found this gruesome utterance in the very heart of a burst of rapturous music. Now here is the riddle. How could it come about that this man whose life was haunted by his past transgression, was at the same time the blithest songster that Israel ever knew. How did it happen that this man with the hunted look in his eyes, with his tear-drenched pillow, with his stricken conscience and broken heart, was the gayest, happiest spirit that the world has ever known? Now there was the problem that baffled me, as I sat with my Bible on my knee. The incongruous conjunction of misery and melody. It may have been a flight of fancy that followed. I do not know. But I felt that I should like to submit this puzzling discord to the very highest authorities, and to sit humbly at their feet, whilst they pronounced upon it. But to whom should I go? I wanted the masters, not of the head, but of the heart. At last I thought of the twelve who companied with Jesus. But I could not ask them all. And besides, they did not all alike impress me as being authorities on such a puzzle of the inmost soul as that which baffled me. Then suddenly I thought of that sacred triad which Jesus formed from out of the twelve. Amidst the glory of the holy mount, in the solemn stillness of the dead child's room, and in the dreadful anguish of Gethsemane, he took with him James and Peter and John. These were his comrades and confidants. Perhaps they would know. I thought I asked them, and this is what they said. 2. I asked James. I told him that it seemed to me that David was haunted by a grim specter that he could not lay even if he would, and that he would not lay even if he could. And yet how his whole heart sang. How was it? And I thought that the apostle answered me. David liked to have his sin ever before him, terrifying as the shocking apparition was, in order to keep fresh and sweet and warm within his soul the rapture of the divine forgiveness 
and the infinite tenderness of the divine love. Now whether this conversation was a mere frolic of my fancy or not, that reply is worth thinking about. James could remember a time when he aspired to a lofty place in the Messiah's kingdom. He knew how easily the heart forgets the real treasures of the kingdom of heaven and hankers after baubles. And the man who has his sin eternally haunting him will never wander far from the wealthiest things. He will build his home near the cross. It is so easy for us ministers and officers and teachers to become superior and professional, and to forget that we were cleansed from our old sins. But the minister or officer or worker whose sin tracks him down as David's did, and stands with ghostly accusing hand outstretched, perpetually before him, will clap his hands as he rises every morning for very joy that he is forgiven. As he eats his meals and does his work, his sin ever before him, all the bells of his heart will be ringing with holy merriment. He will preach because he cannot be quiet, and sing as the thrushes sing, because it is easier to be songful than to be silent. 3. I asked Peter. I told him that it seemed so strange to me that David could be so terribly haunted, and yet so tremendously happy at one and the same time. How was it? And I thought that Peter answered me. David liked to have his sin ever before him, in order to keep him wary and watchful, guarded and prayerful. And again I say, whether this conversation of mine was a mere freak of my fancy or not, that reply is worth turning over. Peter's memory lashed him sometimes most mercilessly. Could he ever forget that threefold denial and threefold absolution? Never. And what then? The horse that has once fallen may easily tumble again. The tiger that is tamed may once more feel the old passion for blood. The snake that is charmed may yet show the force of its fangs. That is why Peter, in his epistles, had so much to say about being kept. Kept by the power of God. Ah, yes. Peter and David liked to have their horrible, shameful, gruesome old sins ever before them, that they might tremble one moment and trust the next. While such alarming memories haunted them, they were incessantly on their guard, lest, peradventure, in a moment that they thought not, like a thief in the night, the old tragedy recurred. 4. I asked John. I told him that I was puzzled by this singular juxtaposition of horrid spectre and of happy song. How was it? And I thought that the beloved disciple answered me. David liked to have his sin ever before him, and would not lay that ghost even if he could in order that he might be exceedingly tender and charitable and compassionate and sympathetic in his treatment of others. And once more I say that whether this conversation of mine was a mere trick of my imagination or not, that reply is worth a thought in passing. David and John felt that it was the delight of their lives that God had so wonderfully forgiven them. They felt that it was the duty of their lives greatly to forgive others. They therefore made it the determination of their lives never to forgive themselves, to keep their sin ever before them. When John Wesley was recrossing the Atlantic on his return from his mission, he was greatly troubled concerning his own unseemly conduct 
and his unworthy conversation with his fellow passengers on board. He therefore resolved never to speak to anyone who might oppose him, or who might sin against God, without having all his own sins set clearly in array before his face. When Livingstone was asked how he contrived to treat the treachery and villainy of African natives and Arab traders with such infinite patience and extraordinary calm, he quietly remarked, I have faults myself. His own sin, ever before him, gave him tender and charitable thoughts of others. There is nothing like it, as David knew, and as John knew, and as Wesley knew. It was just because his own sin was ever before him that David could write his wonderful evangelistic psalms, giving encouragement and hope to the vilest things creeping. It was just because his own sin was ever before him that John went down to his grave in the days of gray hairs, still repeating, My little children, love one another, love one another. It was just because John Wesley's own sin was ever before him that the roughest men and the foulest women of England were made to feel the warm glow of his sympathy and the resistless power of his message. How can I harshly judge the guiltiest thing that breathes if my own sin is ever before me? It is impossible. 5. I took the Bible from my knee, closed it, and laid it aside. I had seen daylight through my mystery. It is only those who know what it is to be haunted who know what it is to be happy. The specter and the song are inseparable. End of Part 1, Chapter 7